This episode of Future You is brought to you by Cengage. Cengage is the education and technology company built for learners. This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You, everyone. I'm Jeff Salingo coming to you today from my home office in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where I continue to be hunkered down. And along with my wife, we're homeschooling our two elementary school girls. I'm joined today by my co-host, Michael Horn, on a new technology we're trying, StreamYard. Great to be with you, Jeff, and uh, great to be with so many of our listeners, of course. And I'm, I'm looking forward to today's conversation as we continue to cover the impact of COVID-19 and the uh, resulting recession, of course, on higher education in, in America. Yeah, Michael, indeed, we're, we're welcoming uh, Fernando uh, Blatchmore, the general manager of U.S. higher education and skills for Cengage, one of the leading digital learning in textbook companies. Among other responsibilities in this role, Fernando oversees Cengage Unlimited, a subscription service for college textbooks and course materials that has received a lot of buzz in higher education circles. From Mexico originally, um, helping transform higher education is really a passion of his, and he's had a, a neat career at Cengage, serving as uh, the chief product officer before this role, as well as the chief strategy officer. Our conversation today with him is going to focus on a new survey that Cengage conducted surrounding the response and impact of COVID-19 from the perspective of administrators and faculty. And then we're going to get into some of the larger issues that this moment uh, brings to the forefront uh, in higher uh, education. Fernando, it's uh, great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be with you guys. So, um, Fernando, we're going to start with a kind of a lightning round here um, because Cengage uh, partnered recently with several org- organizations, including WECT and uh, UPSIA, which is the Continuing Education Association and Higher Education, to survey more than 800 administrators and faculty members at more than 600 institutions about the response to COVID-19. There was a lot of interesting findings from the survey responses, but I wanted to pull out three for your quick reaction. And the first one is among the faculty. When, when they were asked kind of what they're relying on for, uh, for delivery of remote education, they talked a lot about the learning management systems they already had and synchronous video like Zoom. So does that tell us that this wasn't the great digital migration that we heard about, but was really about simply moving uh, in-person courses online? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Jeff. And I think context is very helpful here. Um, in early March, so right before COVID hit, uh, less than 50% of institutions had any online or hybrid learning. And I think around 40% of faculty were delivering any type of online or uh, lear- learning. So when when COVID hit in essentially two weeks in the end of March, where every school had to move to some sort of remote learning or distance learning, there was very little time for institutions and for faculty. So at Cengage, we normally serve over 100,000 faculty in a year with digital, over 5 million students. In those two weeks alone, we had to set up new courses for faculty for over 10,000 faculty, serving over half a million students. So what that tells me is that this first wave, what we saw was people doing the best that they could as quickly as they could. So it's not a fundamental digital evolution, it's more of a triage of doing the best they can as quickly as they can to deliver through the semester. 
So the other thing that was in there, when you asked administrators what would be helpful, they, they 50% of them said emergency plans from other institutions. And we know clearly institutions didn't have a playbook for this, but does that mean they're really still flying blind, uh, so to speak, even now? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a great question. And uh, in a way, we're all flying blind. Uh, we're all trying to figure out how do we get past the first response. Um, I know at Sengage, we had to move 5,000 people to work from home overnight, like many other businesses. And now we're working through what does that mean for the new normal? So I think what institutions are doing uh, is relying on their networks that they have, whether it's vendors, partners, other institutions they work with. But there's no clear recipe for best practices. And every institution is a little bit different. Uh, and that's what came out in the survey for me. And then so one other thing in terms of the three things that really struck me about this was uh, when asked what would be most helpful to online instruction, access to digital materials ranked second only after general online support. So what does that tell us about kind of the digital muscle of institutions before this crisis? Was it was it really robust enough, in your opinion? I think it's very varied. I think there's uh, a, a wide spectrum of institutions. What was very surprising for me is uh, talking to presidents and provosts of institutions that had very large online programs and very large programs on campus. They were still struggling with the on-campus programs. So I think what, what it tells me is that, yes, there's some gaps in the, call it the backbone, the readiness, the faculty training, the learning design. There's some gaps, but also that it is a very complex equation to do very quickly. And this takes a multi-stage process with a very clear delivered end goal in mind. Uh, That's super helpful, Fernando. And I guess I'd I'd love to actually go one one level deeper uh, beyond the lightning round, if you will. Um, As you look at the survey, and and frankly, you've talked to institutions, so you've gone beyond the survey, right, to contextualize what's come through those responses. Can you get a little bit more specific about what's working and not working right now uh, for in, in, in order, first faculty, second institutions writ large, and then third, the students themselves? I think for all three segments, what worked or what is working is sufficiency given the time they had, meaning they found a way to continue to deliver. For many students, that means that they could continue to uh, prepare for for their lectures, continue to learn for faculty that they found a way, uh, not always the best way, but they found a way to very quickly move online. And for institutions, they found a way to transition in a system that has been historically slow to move. So I think the I, I really commend, and when I talk to deans and provosts and faculty, it's admirable the work everybody has done in the ecosystem so quickly. So I think that's what's worked, to be honest. What hasn't worked is the limitations of, the, of that first wave. So students are struggling with engagement, Uh, Because the experiences were not built for a full digital learning experience, were more quickly put together migrations. So students are are struggling with engagement. Uh, There's some equity uh, and accessibility issues, of course, that couldn't be solved. Faculty have not been fully trained in many cases. So I think some of those limitations of the first wave are what is showing, and it, it really the, the strongest point of view that we look at the most is the student point of view, because that's the end customer. And students are saying, look, we, we see that there's some value on digital l- learning and that 
there's a lot of promise here, but the current experience we're receiving is not sufficient. So that for me is what what is not so much that is not working, but that is will no longer be sufficient going forward. So, um, Fernando, you've described to us uh, a little bit earlier that we're living kind of in wave one of this crisis in in higher ed, which is really this fast pivot this spring to remote education. So, does that mean kind of wave two now starts now and kind of this summer as we begin planning for the fall? Um, okay, so then what what should institutions be thinking about and laying the groundwork for right now in order to be prepared better prepared for the fall, which it seems everyone's talking about. Yeah, for me, wave two started the moment wave one finished, uh, which was the moment schools were starting to deliver distance learning. And now there are many faculty are struggling with how do we do exams, proctoring, etc. But the institution needs to be ahead. So the institution is already in wave two, which is putting the groups together of thinking, what does that fall? And to be honest, it could be more than that fall. It could be that next January experience looks like. And for me, the the principles of design as they think through it that I think of, uh, the first is obviously you have to prepare for it. Um, so I've talked to many institutions and faculty that say we will never again be unprepared for something like this. I think the second one that is very important is that sufficiency of wave one is not sufficiency of wave two. We're starting to see this when students are saying, how they choose their the decisions they might make in the fall based on the type of schooling they can receive, moving from public schools to public states to community colleges, et cetera. So you have to be ready for a different level of sufficiency. And I think every institution needs to assume that their competitors and other schools will be ready. So that means that you need to think more about that holistic learning experience about how does the student receive the different courses in a symmetrical way? How do you check in? How do you notch, et cetera? And I think the third thing that is a little bit more on the how, but it's very important, is what we've seen is that institutions that crave what we call a nerve center, so a, a central group that is starting to prioritize and think holistically through the decisions and moving very quickly, and it usually includes uh, deans or provost, uh, the technology lead, whether it's the CIO or the academic lead, a few key faculty and committee members, the quicker that group comes together and decides what they're going to solve for, because you can't go from zero to 100 in three months, but it's more, how do you systematically address that next wave? And also, who do you rely on as your partners, as your vendors, as your ecosystem to make sure you're ready? That's what I think schools need to start uh, are working through and need to to get act very fast on. So that actually that that focus on sort of the how and then also your your, your comment about sufficiency. What's actually sufficient in this moment is very different in wave two than wave one. Uh, ties into the question that I'm curious about, which was there's a big focus obviously in higher ed before this crisis on student success and affordability. And I, I think it's fair to say that higher ed was beginning to move the needle a bit on student success, but outside of the disruptors like Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University gaining market share, not so much on affordability. That was more of a, you know, you'd see the occasional tuition reset or the occasional we're keeping tuition flat, but not really resetting on affordability. So I'm curious from your perspective, as we think about what sufficiency looks like in wave two, and you already alluded to the fact the metrics for what success look like change, and frankly, what people are willing to pay for probably changes as well. What does this crisis do 
uh, in your opinion, to institutional strategies on each of those two issues? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a great point. And I think success and affordability or cost to value, if you will, uh, is the key equation. And I think you're right that pre-COVID, um, we were starting to see movement in the needle on success. And more and more people, whether it was corporations, other end users in a way of, of, of a skill force students that are ready for work get more involved and success was starting to to look better but affordability hadn't made that significant moves from an institutional perspective i think there were a lot of moves that were happening for students moving away from a traditional model uh call it in a dual enrollment model call it into nine-month programs one-year programs boot camps etc but the core higher education uh, model is still prohibitive for many students. And I think the current distance learning plus the current economic crisis, uh, because let's remember that over 40% of students also work, uh, and many of those students now will not have work, I think that'll put a pressure to reset a bit the equation and to reset the costs for the students. And it'll affect everyone in the ecosystem, and it can be a very, very beneficial reset for the for the ecosystem. Uh, so, Fernando, let's uh, talk about um, Cengage specifically here for a minute, because campuses were already moving to new models of course materials before this crisis. We know, for example, that textbook prices had historically really been one of the fastest growing costs in higher ed, and access to materials is correlated to student success. In other words. Many students were simply not purchasing materials that they needed um, in order to to take their courses and retain and, and graduate on time. So with so many institutions now moving so quickly online, what does that mean for faster adoption of course materials? That, that was a big hurdle on many campuses. Did the fact that we were forced to think differently about digital this spring kind of reduce that as a barrier to change in higher education, that maybe more faculty members now might be more willing to adopt uh, digital course materials? Yeah, I, I think there's uh, there's two points for me, and they're very linked. Uh, one is the point around affordability uh, and affordability of digital solutions, including textbooks, which for me is a prerequisite for the next level, which is success or quality learning. Uh, from an affordability perspective, student spending on on digital solutions and textbooks, so their entire their entire spending on on learning materials has been coming down on a cost perspective. So it now stands at around five hundred dollars on average for a year, which I think is a good thing because it allows more and more people to have access. So affordability, I think we're making the right moves and the right progress. But then the question is, the quality of those solutions. We've spent obviously many years and, and a lot of money to make what we think are very high quality digital learning solutions that work very well in the context of a faculty and a student working with each other. So I think this can be an accelerator that's good for, for, for faculty and for institutions, both from an affordability and from a quality perspective. 
Yeah, and that so just staying on that topic for our last question, uh, because you started alluding to what what stays, and frankly, it sounds like you're saying affordability actually has started to become a, a feature of the textbooks. But the question, or, or sort of the next frontier, is quality for what you're actually paying, or, or as you said earlier, value. Uh, just looking, you know, zooming back out on the macro level, in your opinion, what's the one or two things uh, from this fast pivot that ends up sticking for the long term in higher ed, specifically around the digital aspect? I, I think the way I think of, of that new normal or what I call wave three is that we're going to end up in a hybrid model where the cost needs to come down for students, but also the line between the physical and the digital needs to be much more flexible for every individual student. And I think the institutions that are able to really work through that, and that requires inst instructional designers, really purposeful approach of how you build those experiences are the ones that are going to differentiate and be able to navigate in the best way that new normal. No, that's great. I, and thanks, Fernando, for joining us uh, during these times of the course and uh, discussing the survey you all conducted at Cengage, uh, but going beyond as well and what this all means uh, for the future of higher education. Appreciate you being with us. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Cengage. Cengage is the education and technology company built for learners. As the largest U.S.-based provider of teaching and learning materials for higher education, they offer valuable options at affordable price points. Their industry-leading initiatives include Cengage Unlimited, the first-of-its-kind all-access digital subscription service. Welcome back to Future You, coming off a good conversation with Fernando from Cengage. Michael, as, as you reflect on what Fernando said, um, you know, what do you think the shift to digital and, and the faculty responses in that survey that they did with other organizations, what do you think it's it suggests and what would what would help kind of more in the in the future in your in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I thought he said something really interesting, which was that contrary to what some uh, you know pundits have been saying about how much higher education has become digital over the last several years, and we've seen this big shift and so forth, Jeff. The, he, you know, his line was that the starting position, I think, was, was, was really low, right? And so my, my takeaway is that, as he said, we're all flying blind right now. Faculty are really, uh, they don't have the support that they need. And, and so I, I think the big shift from my perspective of what would help more in the future is that when we think about digital teaching and learning, we don't think about this as a solo act. You know, the sort of the historical way of viewing the faculty model was that I'm the faculty member, I impart wisdom to you. And what I think we've learned about really good online learning is that it takes teams to deliver a comprehensive experience. And so that shift, in my opinion, from one to many, uh, and really a team teaching model, if you will, you know, in terms of instructional design, support of the faculty member, uh, and so forth, to me, that's a, a big shift that I think would help a lot more in the future is, is, is really in mindset and, and, and team structure. Um, I'm curious, your, you, frankly, you know, your takeaway uh, as well. But, but I guess the second question, Jeff, that I'll, I'll, I'll layer in there is, uh, as you react to that, is that, you know, you've also said to me that you think in future uh, pandemics that the fact that there wasn't a strong set of open access online materials that have been kept up to date is just sort of like a huge miss, right, in, in, in the ecosystem. And so I'm sort of curious, you've given some thought to it. What, what would that backbone of OER materials, if you will, look like? Uh, and, and, and how would that help uh, institutions and faculty in the future? 
Yeah, Michael, I don't think it's just going to be um, uh, OER, but I think it will be a combination of, of digital resources that we're going to see. In fact, you know, we already saw before COVID-19 kind of a proliferation of, of, of approaches to acquiring uh, textbooks and, and course materials, right? So we had the subscription model and these plans all differ slightly, but in general offer students kind of day one access to a full set of materials across courses for, for one price. You know, we mentioned, you know, uh, you know, Cengage Unlimited for institutions, which was this digital subscription with complete access to all the learning products across, uh, you know, hundreds of courses. Uh, there's also inclusive access where, you know, in, uh, campus bookstores working with publishers um, and institutions, and they provide digital textbooks to all students within individual uh, classes, uh, the cost of which, of course, are folded into tuition. Uh, then we have, of course, open education resources, which is the OER movement, uh, which describes, you know, kind of the set of freely adaptable, reusable and shareable uh, materials uh, that allow instructors kind of the freedom to kind of copy and paste the relevant content uh, to fit their needs. And, and you know, and, and we saw a movement in all three of these directions uh, before COVID-19. And I'm, I'm starting to realize that this, and, you know, and this is one of the questions we, we talked to Fernando about, one of the issues is that I think coming out of this is that the kind of what I would describe as the digital muscle of these institutions is just going to have to be stronger uh, because whether there is a, an interruption uh, in, uh, in, in the fall or beyond uh, is now, I think, um, you know, is, is one question. But I think beyond that, it's clear to me that students particularly, and now even some faculty members, have gotten really used to using digital materials. And so this idea, and we know that it leads to student success. And so, uh, meaning that, you know, when students have materials, they're more likely to remain in school and, and graduate um, later on. And so to me, that is really kind of the learning that we're coming out of this with is that digital kind of the digital backbone, the digital muscle, the digital IQ of institutions is going to have to be much higher. Uh, and we're not just going to kind of hit the reset button and go to back to what we used to have. Yeah, I mean, it's a really strong point, Jeff. And I guess it leads me into my last question uh, for, for you, which is if we zoom out then, because that's, that's the textbook business and sort of cu curriculum and where that goes and so forth. If we zoom out for the broader implications for higher ed and we ask Fernando, of course, you know, what remains from this fast pivot uh, to remote learning when we get back into not just wave two, but he called then wave three. If we zoom out and think about all the different dimensions of, of what higher ed looks like, from your perspective, what, what, what are some takeaways or things that stick uh, from this moment? Uh, well, uh, you know, and I, this is not uh, unique to, uh, you know, either of our thoughts and Fernando said it uh, at the end there in terms of hybrid, um, I, you know, a hybrid model kind of taking over. And and that's what I see coming out of this, that, um, you know, we're, we're obviously residential campuses and face-to-face -face education is not going away, but it's clear to me coming out of this. And if you talk to students and faculty members, the entire experience wasn't great in all cases, but parts of it were. Parts of it were better. Uh, and, and I think that faculty particularly that maybe never experimented with, you know, flipped classrooms or hybrid courses, you're going to see a lot more experimentation among those faculty members now. So I think that to me 
we we are we're not we're not going back to a fully residential campus. We're not going all the way online. I think we're going to meet somewhere in the middle. You know, we're going to continue to have online courses. We're going to continue to have uh, fully face-to-face courses. But I think we're going to see a lot more uh, movement towards that middle ground around um, around hybrid education. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, uh, and and I I don't disagree. I think that that movement toward hybrid education makes sense. I I will say I, I was struck by one thing he said, which sort of uh, I, I guess reinforced something that I've thought, but I often don't verbalize. Which is he, he made the point that uh, when he was talking about that affordability, um, re, you know, really hadn't been driven uh, by the core you know residential institutions, but it had been driven by the students migrating to alternative programs, not just the disruptors, frankly, like WGU and Southern New Hampshire, but those entities as well as boot camp, shorter programs, things of that nature. And, and it did occur to me that in all sectors, I think y- you see that change happens not by the existing or incumbent institutions somehow finding a way to move to a lower cost structure. It does happen when the customers or, or students in this case, which slightly different, I think, from customers, um, they migrate, if you will, to the disruptors that have that lower cost structure. And that's how affordability is driven. And so sometimes I wonder, you know, even in a move to hybrid, I think you might see a, a, a slowdown in the increase of, of higher ed, but I don't think we should expect a dramatic reduction. It's more as the disruptors and these shorter form programs and so forth gain share. That's where I think we'll look back in a generation, frankly, I think it's going to continue to take a while uh, for uh, affordability writ large in the quote unquote system, if you will, Jeff. Well, Michael, uh, that's a wrap for today. Um, So it's been great to see you on StreamYard today. And thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Future You. And thanks to Fernando Blechmar from uh, Cengage for joining us. Uh, We're going to be back with more episodes on covering the different dimensions of this crisis um, in the coming weeks and its impact on the future of higher education. So until then, be safe and stay strong. Hey folks, Michael Horn here. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Future You. And just a reminder to please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the podcast, rate us so that others can find us and uh, find out about the good conversations that we're having here. As always, thanks so much for listening.